0: Happy Advent, Merry Christmas, all the rest. It's great to see you. It gets a little harder to get up, doesn't it, when it gets dark out there? Man, these days are short. feel like you just get up and find the lights come on and it's about bedtime again. Good morning to you. hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and got some rest, got fired up about the Bible again. I hope you enjoyed your week off from From Amen, and now we're going right back at it. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Turn the light on in your brain. Expand your heart. We are studying Proverbs, in case you hadn't remembered. And uh, it's a very important book of the Bible. It's called Wisdom Literature. We're looking at wisdom and how it applies practically to everyday life. That's what wisdom does. It takes the Word of God and applies it practically to life. And I I say if something doesn't, doesn't work on the street, it just doesn't work. If you can't apply it, it's really not worth spending some time on it. So we've been looking at God's Word and how it makes all kinds of difference in practical, everyday life. In Proverbs, we've seen is that wisdom that applies in about 90 to 95% of the cases. You know, when you do this, this is going to be the outcome. And after Christmas, we're going to look at some of those cases that are perplexing where you do this, and then you get a funny outcome. And you're wondering, what in the world happened? Well, there's a thing called reflective wisdom that we'll study in Ecclesiastes and in Job that is very, very necessary to round out our whole thinking about how God's Word applies to life. Very, very important. But it's very important that we build a good foundation, and we've been doing that in Proverbs, and we studied the first nine chapters, which is sort of foundational, sets the framework for what wisdom is. And then in chapters 10 through the end of Proverbs, we've seen just a collection of proverbial sayings taking this framework of wisdom and applying it to specific circumstances. For example, if you're a wise man, your speech is going to be different than if you're an unwise man. If you're a wise man, your friendships are going to be built differently than if you're an unwise man. If you're a wise man, uh, you're going to spend your money and you're going to look at finances in general in a very different way than you would if you're an unwise man. If you're a wise man, your family is going to be run differently And your relationships with the opposite sex, we're going to see next week. And your view of who women are is very different if you're a wise man than if you're an unwise man. On and on it goes. And today we're going to see a very important implication of wisdom. And it has to do with how the law of God is applied in your life. The law is not something that's passe. It's not just something that leads us to Christ because we know what a failure we are, and we need to be forgiven—that's true. The law does do that, but the law shows us how to live. And a wise person is one who looks at the law, and figures out how to how to use it in life and how to apply himself to that law. I'd like for us to look at a verse that we mentioned some weeks ago, back in Proverbs chapter two. We're going to start there. It's not listed on your your handouts. You need to add this, I suppose. But it really is kind of the key verse, and I. I want you to look at Proverbs 2, verse 9. This is page 976. I guess your Bible's kind of automatically open to Proverbs now. Proverbs 2, 9 says, Then you will understand. That is, when you have wisdom, then you will understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path. Those are three technical words for how to live life in community, what is right, what is just, what is fair. The word right is the word, of course, we get righteousness from it, and the Hebrew word is right or righteous, and then the same word of a uh, combination of certain endings make for the word righteousness. What is righteousness or what is it to be righteous? It is simply to conform to the law of God. A righteous man is a man who takes the revealed principles, precepts, commandments of God and puts them into practice. So you simply conform to the will of God in your life. There's what is right. What is just? Well, what is just is giving your neighbor his due According to biblical communal standards. All right, you see a little different nuance there. Justice has to do with how we're treating our neighbor according to biblical communal standards. And we're going to see that those biblical communal standards might be somewhat different from what we had assumed. And then what is fair is simply what is equitable. The word can be, is a word that can simply mean level. We're all on level ground. We're all equitable with one another. We treat each other fairly. So those three words kind of make up, if you will, the ethical, personal ethical, and social ethical life of the wise person. And so one of the tremendous benefits of being a wise man is that you know how to apply the commandments of God in your life personally. And you know how to apply it with regard to your neighbor. And you know how to treat your neighbor equitably. There's a wise man. It's a very important aspect of our life together as wise people. Now, the first thing we want to notice is, Roman number one, keeping God's law, that's righteousness, brings blessing. Righteousness brings blessing. Keeping God's law. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. Righteousness. Now, let's talk about righteousness for just a moment. And particularly, uh, I know this doesn't apply to every one of you. you wouldn't, every one of you wouldn't call yourself a born-again Christian or an evangelical Christian. But probably most of you here in this room would, or a good number of you. And let's just talk about the experience of righteousness among people who go by that label. Let's talk about sex for just a minute. 33% of adults in the United States have lived with a partner apart from marriage. Isn't that an amazing statistic? The adults in this country, a third of them, have lived with a sexual partner to whom they were not married. Well, what's the rate among people who call themselves born again? 25 percent. One out of four. Pornography usage is about the same among evangelicals and non-Christians. The divorce rate. Uh, in the USA, 25 percent of the adult population has gone through a divorce. Same rate among evangelicals or born agains As a matter of fact. Among those who call themselves born again who have been through divorce, 90% of those who have gone through the divorces went through the divorce after they received Christ as Savior and professed Him. You with me? What about the giving rates? 6% of born again people tithe. And the more income they've made over the past 30 years, the less percent of their income they've given. So it's down somewhere around 3.5% of their income. So they're getting one-third of a tithe. So they're not obeying that command either. What about race relations? What percentage of the people, white people, Caucasian people in this country would object to having an African-American neighbor? All right? Among Catholics, 11% say that they would object. Among mainline liberal Protestants, 16%. And among born-agains, 17%. Is that making sense to you? It's clear that the attitudes of racism actually have gone up among people who have become born-again. Born again people watch seven times more TV than they do reading the Bible, praying, and worshiping. So, these statistics, by the way, that I, these came from a book that was published about three years ago by Ron Sider called "The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience." If you're interested, just I think that first chapter you'll see most of those, those statistics quoted from other places. Obviously, there is an enormous problem with righteousness in the American church as most of us know it a huge problem it's as though we didn't know anything about righteousness at all it's as though we've completely abandoned the task of seeking God's righteousness you can put your mark Bible marker there in Proverbs 2 and go over for just a moment to the first book in the New Testament Matthew and let's look at chapter 5 for just a moment and let's look at what Jesus teaches on this matter of righteousness. You remember he starts, this is page 1550, 1551. He starts with the Beatitudes. And then when you come to verse 17, he gives an introduction to what he's going to say in the rest of this chapter. And in the rest of chapter 5, what he's actually doing He's showing us how you apply the Old Testament law to ourselves in the New Testament. And what is the meaning of the, what are the meanings of the commandments and how do you put them into practice? And he's showing how the rabbis don't get it. And the, the, the oral tradition did not interpret the written tradition correctly. That's his point. So you could say, and I guess in modern day terms, he's fighting with the Talmud. He's battling with the Talmud and with the rabbis. And he's showing how they did not properly interpret the law. So this is the way he begins that discussion in verse 17. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Basically just the opposite. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I'm going to bring them to full measure. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, look at this now, verse 20, I tell you that unless... Your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that folks think that the righteousness, the practical righteousness of the Pharisees is supreme, that it cannot be exceeded. He's saying, I'm telling you, nobody's getting into the kingdom of heaven unless they surpass what most people consider to be the height of righteousness. Why? Well, he goes on to explain the rest of this chapter. You thought that not to kill was just not to take somebody's life. I'm telling you, when you hate somebody, you've murdered them spiritually. And that's a violation of the law. He says the rabbis make all kinds of excuses about the law. And they explain it a zillion different ways. But they don't deal with the heart. And that's the reason I'm telling you that the righteousness of the believer, of the wise person surpasses the righteousness of someone who just have a, has a bunch of rules and regulations that they're conforming to, by far. And you can see Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament law. It is meant to be applied. It doesn't just lead us to Christ so that we cry out for forgiveness. Once we cry out for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, we go back to the law and say, Now, Lord, by your law, show me how to live as a wise man. And so many born-agains are treating the law only with what the Reformed theologians call the second use of the law, that is to drive us to Christ, and they forget the law. So what what Solomon is saying to his sons, who are going to be kings, don't forget the law. Go back to the law. And when you are a wise person, you will live a righteous life, and you will rule righteously. So you see Jesus' attitude here. Let's look on into the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 6. You come to this great section about not worrying, which is a wonderful text for us in the economic times we've been finding ourselves this year. It might do us a lot of good just to memorize Matthew 6, 25 through the end of that chapter. But look at the, the last two verses. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is saying the same thing. Look at the blessings that come with righteousness. When you are really seeking to conform to the law of God from the heart, not just outward conformity, not just image management, not just so others will think you're righteous, but you're taking the law of God, applying it to your heart, all these things will be given to you. Why are you scrambling for them? God's scrambling for them for you. You think He can't scramble and come up with enough for you? Seek His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Look at chapter 7. And particularly, look at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, everyone who has a profession who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoops, this is scary. So who's going to enter? Glad you asked. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's righteousness. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers, not law doers, not righteous doers, evildoers, who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And when people claim Jesus Christ as Lord and then they do something opposite, they may fool you, May they may fool me. They do not fool the Lord himself who's saying the people who have come to know me are people who have received wisdom. And people who have received wisdom know that my law is good and they know it's a blessing and they begin to conform to it increasingly not perfectly but sincerely and repentantly and we fall short of the law every moment every time I draw a breath I'm doing something in my mind or my voice or my body that is sinful I know that but there's a trajectory to my life It's called repentance and I'm turning from evil and disobedience and turning to the Lord and crying out for his help not just to forgive me for the past but to help me walk with Him in the future. To be a wise man is not just to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, it's to walk with Him. That's the reason that Proverbs 2, 9 says, every good path. It's a lifestyle to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a lifestyle to belong to Him. It's a wise life, which is applying the law of God. And that's the reason we should study the law of God so that we constantly are learning how to put it into practice. You know as well as I do, you can't be good in your profession unless you're continuing to study your profession. If your profession is changing as much as mine is, you're reading all the time. I know you physicians are reading all the time. Because if you're not very careful, 15 years out of med school, <laughs> and you're not going to have any, any more patience you know, if, if you don't keep up with technology. Uh, you're going to be obsolete very quickly. I know you're studying. So am I. There are new problems and heresies and trends and people's thinking changes. The church's ideas of who God is change over a man's lifetime. I'm addressing different things than I did when I graduated from seminary. What about the law? Are you studying the law constantly? The Word of God and seeking to put it into practice. Well, you can see from the attitude of Jesus, who is, of course, the wisest of them all, he looks to the law too. He loves the law. David says in Psalm 119, I love thy law, O Lord. It brings him life. It sets him free. He says, Lord, I love your law because in freedom I walk in your statutes. So he experiences human freedom by binding his heart to the law of God. Now that's righteousness, and that is what the church today where you and I live is largely not doing. And there's some reasons for this and we'll try to get to it a little bit later this morning about the reasons. But let's look at uh, briefly and then we'll go on to our next point here. But let's look at ABC here. First of all, A, ethics is more important than success. The only way that you and I are going to receive this kind of wisdom that leads to a righteous life is if it is more important to us than our professional success, our material success, our social success. This is not something that you can put in there with a mix of everything else in your life and have it be one of the top six or seven priorities in your life. You've know, you got to have a healthy spiritual life and a healthy psychological life and a healthy social life and a healthy, healthy family life, healthy financial life. Just mix it in there. It's going to work. It will not work that way. It is not a slice of the pie. It's the pie. It's the whole pie. It's everything. Go back to Proverbs where we were, Proverbs chapter 2. And let's look specifically at what comes before verse 9 where he says, Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. Then what? What then? Well, let's go back up to verse 1 of chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, that is, you accept them and you store them up, that is, there's some retention. As you get older, retention, I find, is more difficult. So we have to work a little harder to store them up. Turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart, that is, meditating, to understanding. And if you call out, that is, prayer, God, help me, give me wisdom for insight. And cry aloud for understanding. And look at verse 4, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Verse 9, Then you will understand what is right and just and fair in every good path. Then you'll get it. When it's silver and gold and hidden treasure to you, then you'll get it. Otherwise, we won't have wisdom and we won't have righteousness. And that's the problem with the church. We have other silver we're looking for. We have another agenda, really. And the church and worship and the Bible and a righteous life is one of several things we'd like to mix in there in our little convenient, comfortable pot to what we call a happy life. And what God is saying, let me tell you what the happy life is. Let me tell you what the blessed life is righteousness. B, ethics is more important than ritual. He says, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That's chapter 21, verse 3. Well, you have, of course, the perfect example of this in 1 Samuel 15, when God instructed Saul as king to go exercise his righteous judgment against the Amalekites, and he had that they had violated the Israelites generations before. God was exercising His justice in ways that only He has a right to do and for reasons that only He needs to know. But He gave Saul a mission to perform. He said, Saul, go exercise my justice against those people, and here's the way it's going to be done. Based on what they've done, I'm going to wipe out that nation. And I want you to kill the men and the women and the children and all their animals. I mean, this is serious stuff. And there's no warrant to do that with anybody unless God were to instruct us to be His agents of destruction. I suspect when Jesus Christ comes back, we'll have the high honor of being His warriors. And we'll be back at it again, I suppose. Maybe we'll be His instruments of judgment in the end. I don't know how that's all going to work out. But here, when God was intruding in time to show us a little bit of something of what the final judgment's going to be like, He exercised physical judgment on a nation. And in the Old Testament, you find that happening. People get all befuddled about the blood and guts in the Old Testament. The reason is there's the theocracy and God's judgment based on nationhood. And that's what it'll be like at the end time. Now we're in dispersion. We don't have a nation. So we don't use the Bible to justify blood and guts. Uh, But in the Old Testament, you had intrusion ethics. You had the ethics of, of the end time being intruded in time. Uh, because we had a theocracy. And here God told Saul exactly how to do it as one of his angels, one of his warriors. And Saul goes out and meets Agag, the commander of the Amalekites, and thinks he's a pretty cool guy. You know, we probably ought to preserve him. He's, he's an intelligent guy. He's able to lead. We might be able to redeem him. And then Saul goes out and he keeps all the fat calves and all the nice little lambs and everything that would provide booty. For him and his troops, obviously. Saul has a better idea than God does. And so God is grieved. He tells his prophet Samuel, go check into that. Samuel goes and checks, and Saul greets him. He says, Samuel, so good to see you. I've been obeying the Lord today. Samuel says, What's the bleeding of sheep in my ear and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Oh, well, that? <laughs> well, <laughs> like I say, I've been obeying the Lord. It's the Lord that we're all here for, and uh, I saved those for a sacrifice. Because you know how the Lord, He loves unblemished sacrifice. He loves real fat calves for sacrifice, and I saved them for Him. And you remember, uh, to make a long, long story short, Samuel basically says to Saul, Saul, stop. He says, stop. That is, shut up. Blah, blah, blah. Stop it. To obey, says Samuel, is better than sacrifice. And to disobey is the sin of divination. It's like looking to other gods to give you guidance. It's paganism. That's what disobedience is. And you've dressed it up in some nice liturgical language. Some nice ritualistic, worshipful language. To make excuses for your own disobedience, your own sex life, your own marital unfaithfulness, your own stinginess, your own unfairness in society, your own racism. You've come up with all kinds of liturgical excuses for what you do. Stop. Shut up. Blah, blah, blah. To obey is better than sacrifice. That is to say, righteousness beats singing any day and you know how important i think singing is because worship is the height of human existence but it's better to be someone who is simply in subjection to the lord if you are in subjection to him you will worship him that's what solomon is saying to his sons sons you know how much i love beauty you've watched me build this temple I obviously love liturgy. You've watched me hire musicians. You know that I love poetry. You've heard me write it. You've heard my poetry. You know how much I love aesthetics. But sons, get something really clear. To obey the Lord is better than all of that. That's what He wants. So you'll see here that the Proverbs is teaching us how radical this righteousness is. The application of the law of God in everyday life is the whole pie. Notice, thirdly, that ethics exalts a community. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. He also says in chapter 11 that that, uh, the upright, through their being blessed, a whole city is exalted. So how is Memphis going to be exalted? How is... The Mid-South is going to be exalted. How is the United States going to be exalted? One way, through the righteousness of God's people. And that's what will make us, in the sight of God, a great nation. You know, de Tocqueville, you know, in the 19th century, when he went back to France, he explained what he saw here in his tour. It was just really simple. The people there love the Lord. They're a righteous people. They give to each other. They have all kinds of mediating volunteer agencies where they're actively engaged in the life of their community. And they're religious people, he said. They take the law of God and they apply it. That is what makes a nation great, not its military, not its GDP, not its beautiful buildings, not its wonderful topography. What makes a nation truly great is its righteousness. So, what makes a community great is its righteousness. What makes a family great is its righteousness. That's what the Proverbs is saying, and obviously, this is not real complicated, but it is obviously profound. Uh, If you'll look in Deuteronomy chapter four, leave your finger there in Proverbs two, as you know, we'll come back to that. But look at Deuteronomy chapter four for just a moment, and here this is what's taught in the. You know, Solomon's just—he's just preaching the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. Moses is saying to the people he loves, See, I've taught you decrees. This is Deuteronomy 4, 5, page 260. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom. See that? Moses said, this is the greatest display of your wisdom. It's your conformity to the law of God. You say, I thought that'd be kind of simple and stupid, just to obey God. No, Moses is saying, this is the height of human wisdom. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Moses said, this is your pride and joy. The law of God which is your righteousness, which is the expression of profound wisdom. So that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's the height of wisdom. The gospel is the height of God's wisdom. It's foolishness to the world, but it's His wisdom. You receive Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God into your heart. Just as He conformed perfectly to the law of God, He then starts to take over every corner of your life. And you begin to conform to Christ which is, in other language, conforming to the will of God, the perfect expression of the word of God, and the will of God is Jesus Christ. So you begin to conform yourself to the law of God. So keeping God's law, which is righteousness, brings God's blessing. It's amazing to me, after all the breakdown of trust in our financial world these days, that the only solutions we can come up with are just make some more laws. And, you know, it used to be that bankers, it was assumed that bankers would loan money to people who could pay it back. We all just assumed that's what banking is. And we had a right to assume that people who are living according to at least the civil statutes will regulate themselves. So that our former head of the Federal Reserve says, I'm surprised (laughs) that bankers didn't regulate themselves. I thought they would be making safe investments. Duh. So now our solution is we're passing laws that you can only loan money to people who can reasonably pay it back. Good work, legislators. And it's a sad day when a nation needs legislators to tell them what their conscience used to tell them. That is a sign of massive decline. If you think that Enron and uh, subprime mortgages have destroyed trust, you just wait. I mean, unless there's a revival of faith in Jesus Christ, this thing is just going to continue to spiral. There's going to be one. Uh, Crisis of trust after another. Secondly, let's look at God's law from another perspective. Equally applying God's law, which is justice, and specifically retributive justice, brings joy. Here's what what Solomon says. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So when justice is performed, the righteous people are joyful. Now, righteousness, I mean justice rather, we're going to talk about in two categories. One is retributive justice. In a moment, we'll get to distributive justice. Retributive justice is the retribution of God's wrath against evil. And it's expressed in human institutions of justice. You'll never read about this in the newspaper. And rarely among jurists. But the primary purpose for retributive justice is to express the justice of God. Believers know that. We don't use that kind of language in political speak because that would be assuming the regeneration of everybody we're talking to. We know they don't understand it or see it that way. But in our hearts, The primary reason for civil justice is the expression of God's justice, and His justice involves His wrath. The primary reason for the death penalty, frankly, is not all the arguments that people debate in the newspapers. The primary reason for the death penalty, whether you believe in it or not, and there's a legitimate debate there, but for those of you who would propose it, let me just say, in the heart of a wise person, the primary reason is The retribution of a just and holy God against sinners who take the life of another person. And you just look in Genesis 6 and that's where it all comes from. God is expressing His wrath against our disobedience. So it's an expression of God's presence. Now, if you don't believe in capital punishment, that's okay. Whatever punishment you do believe in, the ultimate purpose behind it is the expression of God's character in our midst. And when we disobey Him in ever-increasing levels of violence, we expect him to respond with ever-increasing levels of response. So that's called retributive justice. And there's a sense in which, you know, what we've allowed in our courtrooms now is for the the victim to be able to come and chew out the violator and to kind of have their day of vengeance in the court is actually contrary, in my opinion, to what justice from a biblical perspective is. The court is to express the justice of the divine in a certain sense. So the only way you can do that is to get human vengeance out of the picture. When you bring human vengeance in, you're displacing the avenging God. So in former days, when that kind of thing was never done, it was because there was an intuition that we're walking on sacred ground. And you don't bring in angry human victims to wreak their vengeance on the criminal. That's not the point. The point is God, first of all, and then secondly, a society. And it's the state versus the person. And the state will wreak vengeance in the name of God rather than the, the victim making their complaint or trying to wreak vengeance in the courtroom. I, hope, I don't know if this is making any sense, but what Solomon is saying is that when there's real justice, the presence of God in our midst, bringing His retribution appropriately as He wants to do in our society and as He's given us in His Word, there will be joy among the righteous. We feel safe in His hands. We feel joyful in His equity and in His justice. Notice that this involves several things. First of all, the Proverbs teach us to listen carefully. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. And gentlemen, in your daily life, you always, you have situations where you're to exercise justice. You're to exercise God's will in the things that are before you. You may have small decisions in man's view, or you may have large decisions, but they're all decisions where you are exercising matters in view of God's presence in your midst, And in order to do that, the Proverbs, Solomon says, listen carefully to both sides. How many times have you listened to somebody, you went off and made a decision, never consulting the person about whom the comment was made, and then you discover three weeks later you really screwed up because you didn't listen to the other side of the issue. When you have angry or hurt people, would you please make an assumption? When you only hear one side of the story, it'll be amazing if you have half the story. You probably have less than half, and the half you have is distorted. So assume that. Now, that's not unkind. You, you're kind to the person who's talking to you. say, I'm so sorry you're hurt. I'm so sorry you're angry. If, if, if it's appropriate for me to be involved, I'll be glad to help. And, and uh, I want you to know I'll be suspending all judgment until, until I hear everything, and then I'll be glad to help out, to help, help you and your, the person you're at odds with to, to come to conclusion. But so often we want to sympathize with this person, or we want to be friends with this person, or we want to get the matter over, And we just don't listen to the whole story. We've got to be very careful. And judges have to be very careful. Lawyers have to be very careful. Elders have to be very careful. Pastors have to be careful. Friends have to be careful. That we're listening to all parties before we begin to draw judgments. We're men. We're supposed to be drawing judgments. Every one of us draws judgments. We're going to be judging angels for heaven's sakes. Of course we're judges. Every one of us. So learn how to judge very carefully, says Solomon to his sons. Secondly, and I wish we had more time to to deal with that, but secondly, protect the innocent. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the innocent of justice. It is not good to do this. Watch out for partiality. Watch out for your friendships. Remember, when you're making a judgment, if there's a conflict of interest you must bring that conflict of interest to the table, let all parties know what your interests are. If they perceive it to be a conflict of interest, you must recuse yourself. Because even if you can make an impartial judgment, in the view of the other parties, you will not have made an impartial judgment, and your judgment won't be helpful. But for sure, in your own mind, you have to forsake your own popularity and your own biases to make a proper judgment. All of you who are jurists, you know this, that you've got to love the law. You've got to interpret the law. And the reason we've been having so many fights over Supreme Court nominations, which we didn't used to have, by the way, uh, several decades ago, the reason we're having all the fights is that people are not sticking to the law. And so you are going to elect somebody who's going to make the law the way you want it to be because no longer are they just simply interpreting the law that we all agreed to and voted on, called the Constitution. They're simply making it on the bench. It's called a living constitution, and they're there now the incarnate constitution. So you better get people there whose constitution you like instead of liking the constitution that was written in 1787. And that's what happens with people today in judgments. It's, it's all up to you. It's, but here we're saying it's the law of God. And when you, your job is to interpret the will of God and get yourself out of the picture. This is wise, and it is rare that men understand that we have biases. We all have social location. We all have our backgrounds. And it is hard work to discipline yourself, to give a good judgment. But if you're a father, you've got to be giving judgments all the time. If you're a head of household all the time, if you in your workplace you have decisions to make all the time, and these judgments uh, have to be in light of God's word, and have to be in order to protect the innocent, and then thirdly punish the guilty. That's difficult, but apply it fairly. Pete Marwick's study some years ago showed that 76% of organizations have experienced fraud in the past 12 months. This is costing us over a hundred billion dollars a year just fraud in organizations because people aren't making judgments they're playing favorites they're winking Oh well you know he does it but so does everybody that's not wise it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come upon them forsake the bribe number d A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the the course of justice. And there are all kinds of bribes. Cash bribes that we've had in our newspaper here for the past several years. Very common. Social bribes. Manipulations. Personal extortions. Doesn't have to be money. Can be other things. That people are using to influence your opinion, to throw you off, of the path of righteousness and justice and equity. And I just say, gentlemen, that is not what Jesus Christ does. Do you ever find Jesus catering to someone, pandering to someone? Do you ever see that in the Gospels? Take Him in to your life and let Him rule. Let Him have His way in the way that you speak and the truth that you give and the judgments that you make. And you go ahead and live with the results. If he died on a cross, you might too. But I want to remind you of something. He got up in three days. And so will you. And if I were you, I'm just telling you, I'd rather take his cross than, some, than the devil's cross. You don't get up from that one. So forsake the bribe, And fifthly, defend the poor. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor. And do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. You you mess with the poor, you're messing with Jesus Christ. He puts it this way. When you've ignored those who are in prison, when you've ignored those who are hungry, you've ignored those who are thirsty, you've ignored those who are naked, guess who you're ignoring? Me. When you've visited those in prison, you have cared for the hungry and you've cared for the thirsty and you've clothed the naked guess who you just clothed me total identity with the margins of society and that's how much we love jesus christ is how much we're loving those on the margins now we're going to, have to move on to the third basic idea that's found about justice in this in the proverbs and that is Mercifully expressing God's love, which is distributive justice, brings peace. Justice has two aspects. That is bringing right judgments. It also, has in restore, it also has to do with restoring proper neighborly relations. That brings shalom. Justice, the word here is mishpat in Hebrew. Mishpat brings shalom. Restoring right relationships with your neighbor brings the peace of God. So righteousness is the application of God's law in your life. Mishpat, or justice, is restoring that right relationship with your neighbor that brings peace. And it has more to do with life than simply making proper legal judgments in the court. It has to do with how we live life together in community. It's a, the, word, the biblical word justice is a larger word than the typical American English use of the word justice. When we say justice, we mean legal justice in the courts. And that's true. That's that's a biblical idea. But that's just not all the biblical idea. Biblical justice also involves distributing resources equitably, lovingly, mercifully in community. And we've got some problems. The gap between the haves and the have-nots is the greatest it has been since 1929 in this country. The percentage gap between the wealthy and the poor is the greatest it's ever been. The USA has the greatest income inequality than any developed nation in the world. The poorest 10% in the USA are poorer than any poor in any developed country in the world except for the UK. The difference between a CEO's salary over the past 30 or 40 years and the salary of an entry-level worker has gone from 44 times that worker's salary to 209 times. And more of us need to do what Max Dupre has done by capping his salary at 20 times the the factory worker. We're out of control. The United States has about 4.5% of the world's population. We consume about 20% of the world's goods. The top 4.5% or 5% of the U.S. population consumes 20% of the U.S.'s goods. So they're teaching us well. We're all copying them. in in the global scene but what we're supposed to do A is guard the poor he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker but whoever is kind to the needy honors God B we're to give to the poor he who is kind to the poor look at this lends to the Lord you want to make a really good (laughs) loan with big interest and he will reward him for what he has done so the interest is going to come from the Lord You give to the poor, you just made a loan to Jesus. Wow. Didn't know you could do that, did you? If you look in Ezekiel 16, 49, you'll find out what Sodom did. In Ezekiel 16, of course, Sodom was guilty of great sexual sin. That's why we all think of Sodom as being, you know, we call them the Sodomites. But in Ezekiel 16, you'll find the sin of Sodom was to oppress the poor. That's what the prophet Ezekiel says. They're judged because they oppress the poor. God notices these things. We're also to speak for God. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. And why do we understand it? Because of His justice with us. We were poor and He clothed us. We were desperate and He gave us hope. We were destined for eternal judgment and He liberated us and saved us. We were hungry and thirsty for righteousness and meaning in life and relationships and He gave them to us. We were the poor. We understand justice because we were the poor. We also understand justice because we love Jesus Christ and He was the poor of the poor. He had nowhere to lay His head at night. The only way that He had food was because people gave it to Him. He had no means of production. He was the poorest of the poor. He identified with them completely. We understand justice. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wise understand justice. Are you growing in your understanding of justice? Is your relationship with Jesus Christ more than just the forgiveness of sins? Is your relationship with Jesus Christ based on his message of what? What's the gospel? The gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom, 122 times in the Synoptic Gospels. That's the big idea. What's the kingdom? It's the will and rule of God being enacted in our day and time with church as the headquarters. Church is the center headquarters for the kingdom. And through the church's work, which is a community of justice and peace and love and worship, radiating out into a broken world that increasingly is experiencing the mishpat and the tzedek, the righteousness and the equity and the shalom, of God. That's the big idea. Seek first, said Jesus, His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That's the calling. Can you think of anything more noble with your life than that? I I, I dare you. Give it a try. (laughs) Come back. Give me an email. Tell me what's more noble than that. And that is what God has called us to. It's an amazing thing. Called us to the wisdom of a living God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for calling us to this amazing gospel of wisdom. Thank you for the revelation of it through Solomon in the Old Testament and then especially through Jesus in the New. We pray that you'll help us to understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path That for us, Jesus will indeed be the way, the path, the truth, and the life. And that in knowing Him and serving Him, we will receive every good blessing from you. Bless, O Lord, each man as he goes his way today as a judge on the earth. As a man who is conforming increasingly to the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer.